Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Jen Hatmaker is a prolific New York Times bestselling author, and her latest must-read is titled Fierce, Free, and Full of Fire. And today we're going to talk about everything from self-actualization, purpose, the concept of spiritual curiosity, and how we should choose our yeses and choose our noes. Jen, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So let's start in the book. You you talk about these five self-reflective categories. Who I am, what I need, what I want, what I believe, and how I connect. Mm -hmm. So let's start there. Let's why these categories? I've been paying really close attention to my community. I've led women for a lot of years now and noticed this very common disintegration, if you will, between what was really true for people in in their hearts, in their minds, in their souls, in their lives, in their relationships, and what they were displaying for everybody else to see. And there was just such a breach. And I noticed that women were just simply not telling the truth. And it was breaking their hearts. And so I started paying, I started really listening to the places where as a community in general, um, we were struggling with integration. And I found it around these categories that women by and large are stuffing down and shutting out and pretending around who I really am, the way that I actually like created to flourish and thrive versus the container and the prescriptive you know, personality that is rewarded in our culture. And um, what I what I want, um, women are primarily discouraged on wanting big, huge things. Ambition is pretty suspect. What I need, we're not telling the truth there. Um, and that is really harming our relationships and our mental health and our physical health. And then what I believe, um, I lead a community where I am, we highly value spiritual curiosity, but that's not always valued in culture. Certainty is valued. Um, and then finally, how I connect, I, uh, relationships and a sense of disconnection are creating a real sense of loneliness for women. And so I thought, let's do di- Let's dive in. Let's dive into these five spaces and see not if we can self improve, but can we self discover? So there are a couple of things I want to touch on there. Okay. One is spiritual curiosity. Mm. What does that mean? So I come from an interesting background where I am the daughter of a pastor and kind of grew up in this church culture, which is its own subculture uh-huh. with its own set of rules and its own set of expectations, especially for women which is different than what the men get. And one thing that became very clear early on for me was that um, self-righteousness and certainty were always going to be rewarded. That there was a sense of, we've got this all figured out. Uh, (laughs) We're right, and this is wrong. Or this is completely right, and this is completely wrong. Um, Very myopic perspective, of course. Uh, Very privileged perspective, of course. It was primarily a white male. Um, It was white male-led, white male-policed. And so what I learned early on were that questions, certainly doubts, were not welcomed. 
and that that was gonna that that ran the flag up the flagpole um the intervention was quickly needed to like get the <laughs> troops back in order right and so i just am re i'm not interested in that that never worked for me spiritually it doesn't work for me as a human person and so i'm interested in building a community where spiritual curiosity is celebrated again that we hold um matters of faith with open hands and with wonder again and with a sense of mystery and prepared to listen and learn and not squeeze to death all these tenets of faith but rather um hold them with a really wonderful curiosity so that to me is where i thrive spiritually so being open being curious yeah not being dogmatic right and maybe it's just me but it seems today in 2020 that so many people out there are a little lost and looking for meaning purpose sure. and significance and that can take various forms it can and it does and we are just human people who live in the year 2020 in america so we can't it's tough it, enough it's tough enough. thank you <laughs> how could we possibly imagine that in the history of humankind we right now in our generation are getting this exactly right you know this is this faith has meandered from generation to generation and it is reliably resilient and that's great news for me that means i am not its protector or its keeper or its guard but rather i can just be a recipient of it's like wonder and I hope that's what um, our generation is able to do and I'm just I'm very interested in setting a spiritual table that is very very wide not very very small mm -hmm. so how much of it you mentioned loneliness and how much of this need for community this need for connection this need for spirituality do you think is driven by the loneliness epidemic when I wrote Fierce, Free, and Full of Fire, it's it's pretty heavily researched. Um, it was born out of a lot of data, born out of a lot of analytics. And um, one surprising thing that I learned is that if you were going to sort of boil down the most ubiquitous human needs, every culture, every generation, every country, every age group, the tip top number one need of human people is belonging and being loved. Uh, it, it usurps virtually every other need that we have. In fact, um, the research shows that when people are deeply connected, when they know they belong somewhere, they love and they are loved, um, almost every single other category that you can point to, they, they can flourish in. Um, and so, and then the opposite is true. When people are lonely and disconnected and feel like they do not have a place to belong, you will see them suffer in almost every category. It affects our productivity. It obviously affects our bodies, our physicality. Um, it affects our sense of optimism and our sense of resilience. It's across the board. I'm, I may get this fact a teeny bit wrong, but loneliness is a greater determinant of an early death Mm -hmm. dying 30% earlier than the normal lifespan than obesity and alcoholism and smoking combined. That loneliness is a greater predictor of an early death. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy, especially with what's going on in the world when we're <laughs> encouraging social distancing. And on the other hand, too, I think about, so we, you know, the, the need for connection and community 
And then I think about another you know problem in the world is so many people, for better or for worse, or maybe in this instance is for worse, is they, they tend to uh, gravitate towards people who share their belief system. Sure. And then it potentially, which is good, you know, you need connection and, sure. and conversation and stimulation, but it can also potentially be bad when there becomes essentially confirmation bias. Right. And then we have like what happens with politics in America. Right. We have two sides who just, they all talk to each other and they're not open to other opinions. So like, what's your thought on like belonging in, in a way that maybe we're not getting now? And like, how do you think about diversity in terms of thought yeah. and community and, and having the appropriate mindset with connection? I like the question. It is an interesting needle to thread because <laughs> on one hand, there's something powerful about being connected to people who love what you love, Yes, you know, or care about what you care about or believe in ways that you believe in that in a healthy manner. And on the other hand, it has created a lot of silos and yes. out of that comes uh, fear, fear of the other, fear of being wrong, maybe, um, fear of dissent, um, sort of on this power hierarchy, which one of us is above the other on the pecking order. And I think we're seeing the results of that right now in our culture that feels incredibly polarized, um, where everything is this binary option, which really isn't true. That's not at all how the world has ever worked. You know, there isn't, it isn't all this and never that, or, you know, that that's just not really functional. And so I, I think our culture is, we're at an interesting crossroads where we're going to have to work a little harder um, than maybe the generations before us because we get to self-select our community right now. We can do that via the internet. We can do that via sort of affinity groups that are so easily accessible now, which again has an upside, but also a downside. Mm -hmm. And so this is going to require an entire generation of people saying, it matters to me that I am in relationship with people who don't share my experiences, who have a different background than me, who are from a different ethnic group than me or a different race than me. They're sexually oriented different than me. Um, or as it's pertaining to kind of what you mentioned, they're politically aligned differently than me. I, I think that's the path back to each other, but it's easier said than done. So on that note, easier said than done. Any advice for someone who's maybe looking to extract themselves from maybe a, a relationship that is maybe a little bit toxic mm. uh, or a community that's starting a, a relationship, I think, of like maybe individuals or friends. Community is a little bit tougher because mm. like how do you extract yourself from a community? Yes. That's, but like any advice for people who are listening like, you know what, like. I don't really like what's going on here or this person's a drag and mm. there's just too much negative energy. I think mm. people struggle with like, well, how do I have a difficult conversation or how do I start to distance myself? Any advice for? Yeah. I think the first step there is to admit when a relationship is sincerely unhealthy. We're a little bit loath to do that. I, I find that humans tend to make excuses for one another um, or take blame um, or are just frankly long-suffering past the point of health where we just think, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to draw a boundary, you know, especially women. Women are very conditioned to prioritize somebody else's feelings at any moment. 
inside of a relationship, inside of a work environment. I mean, you name it, we learn how to read a room and give it what it wants, right? <laughs> so even if that's inside a complicated relationship. And so I think there's also a difference between assessing a relationship as worthy of reform, which is possible, or... I like that word, reform. It's possible. <laughs> um, applying good boundaries to a relationship that has gone sideways has the potential to put it back on the tracks. Um, when you are no longer reaping what somebody else is sowing, but rather the chips fall where they should, um, and you say, oh, this is not, I'm not going to have, I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. You're not going to be able to speak to me like this anymore. I'm not going to pick up the pieces like this in, in the same manner anymore. Sometimes that can fix a, that can, that can reroute a relationship back on the tracks, but some relationships are worth walking away from. And so I think that takes an internal fortitude to say, I need to be super honest right now that this is bad for me, that I don't like who I am inside this relationship. I don't like how um, the trajectory it is on. And that's a hard call to make sometimes, but sometimes, it's not often the very best thing we can do for ourselves. Agreed. So one of the things I, I loved about the book is the, the message of empowerment, specifically for women as a man who has two young daughters and was yeah. raised by women and our yeah. audience is mostly women. I'm love surrounded it. by women. Yes. I'm a millennial woman at heart, I guess. I love it. Um, and, and you had a, a great quote, the deepest parts of who we are rise up. They can't help it. Mm. What do you mean by that? I also love women and I lead women and I've got two daughters also and I have two sisters, and so I'm also embedded in that community deeply. And I notice that women, and frankly, boys and men, but I'll put that over here for a minute. Yeah, put um, us over there. I'm going to put you over here for a minute, but you're not exempt from this. Women are very deeply conditioned from a super early age. Um, and we are told how much space we can take up, right? We are told how many opinions we are allowed. Um, we are told what personality will be rewarded in whatever room, which by the way, can shift according to the room. Um, we are told to sort of shrink where boys by and large are told to expand. And so, you know, we get those cultural messages real early on. And of course, then inside of that is we're also told how to look like how much physical space we can literally take up with our bones and our bodies. Um, and so I think those messages come so early and so often um, that we assimilate them almost without knowing. Um, and so what I'm discovering is that women hit their 20s and 30s and go, who the hell am I? Like, I don't even know. I know that I know how to work this room. Um, I know how to keep the status quo here. You know, I know how to hit the marks that have been handed to me, but I sense that something different is inside of me. Um, that I am I'm meant for more. I am made for something different. I um, have different ideas, thoughts, dreams, beliefs, convictions. And so what I meant by that quote is that if we pay enough attention, if we give that inner part of us enough care, those pieces of us rise up. They just do. And so I think that's why a lot of women are feeling frustrated and disintegrated and dissatisfied with their lives because that internal identity is raving their hand. Like, this is who we are. Like, this is what we care about. This is how we are made and how it's not matching our environment. So how do we become better listeners to that inner voice? Yeah. 
because you know as a man sometimes i it, there's the fine line between the inner voice and then the chatter yeah it's a great point sometimes our inner voice is mean and yeah. deserves to be ignored so i hear what you're saying on that uh this is this is our work this is the reason i wrote this entire book how do we listen to that voice? What does that mean? And what does it look like? Because the truth is, if we're going to be really honest about that sort of internal work, there's a cost to it. Sure. It's going to unbalance the equilibrium we have helped create and maintain all around us in our relationships, perhaps in our careers, in our, bo- our relationship with our bodies. You know, we're, we're going to upset the apple cart if we decide to pay attention to who we are and to let that person live. Um, and so I, I contend my thesis, the work is worth it. And on the other side of it, although there may be some loss or cost built into that process, it is entirely worth it to get to the other side of it and be free and be true and be genuine and be integrated. I, I, I can't think of anything I would rather have for the women in my life, for my daughters, for the community that I lead. This is the, this is the work I've done. And I sit here now. I, I can't think of anything I'd be afraid of now. So hearing you speak, it reminds me, I'm going to totally botch the quote, but it was a C.S. Lewis quote, mm-hmm. essentially about like, it was a kind of a parable about, about building a house and likening it to spiritual development or development. And essentially, if the foundation and structure wasn't right, sometimes you need to tear down the house and start over. Yeah. And for me, it kind of, it was, it was like, God, I have to like always do the math now. So I was, I was, long story short, I was an equities trader mm. and 9-11 happened. It mm. changed me like a lot of New Yorkers. And I decided I like wanted to start, I, this wasn't for me, I need to start over. And mm-hmm. it was actually like a 10 year process yeah. that I went from like one foot out the door to my buddy green eventually being successful. And mm. through that process, the early years, it felt like I had to, you talk about like doing the work, I like yeah. tear down everything. Yeah. I'd like start over, I moved right. back home, talk about a cost. broke. But it's like this idea of the, the work is work and it's not as, there's a, there's a great line, um, you know, on the concept of manifestation from Jim Carrey, he was like, you can't go, you know, manifest something and then go on the couch and eat a ham sandwich. That's right. You have to do the work. That's right. Um, and so going to like the work, like what advice, you know, it's daunting to people. It is. And, and that's so, fair. Uh, yeah. Yes. So like for me, it was like a 10 year process looking back. I'm like, it all worked out, but it was like, you know, it was painful. I appreciate <laughs> you saying that. I think that's a great example. And I tried not to shirk away from that. I understand the cost built in. Well, you, you have this other great line in the book. You wrote eight books before anyone read one. I which mean, is where talk I was about going. a process. <laughs> talk about a process. But I, I think it's important. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, not like I'm going to change my life tomorrow and all it's going right. to be good. And sometimes that happens. But That's right. And nor is it a matter of simply make, deciding in my mind, I'm going to wake up tomorrow true. I'm just going to be a true, genuine person and say what I mean and feel what I believe and live out my convictions and um, ask for what I need. I wish it were that easy. 
but the truth is it isn't. And so with the exception of a few people that I know, I do know a handful of women in my life who I honestly believe were born self-actualized. I mean, they came out of the womb like that. They would not need this book. They have never needed to do this work. Their interior has always matched the exterior, but I find that to be the exception, not the rule. And so for the majority of us, like you included, that's why I said boys and men get involved involved in this too. This is not just girls. Boys are also handed. You're, you're a lot more evolved than we are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? You're you're handed a set of rules too. Totally. Um, what your opinions should be and how much space you should take up. And and there's a narrative that boys try to fit into as well that is not a one size fits all either. I, I think boys and men are also deeply disserviced. I have three sons. You're talking to an ex-college basketball player, so I know all these. Of course you do. <laughs> wow, you really had a stereotype. I was president of my fraternity, the whole thing. Ah, yes. Columbia, you, not, you know, okay. not, not UT. Yeah. A little yes, different. Yes. But, you know, well, you ways, learned your rules. I definitely learned. You learned your rules. You gave the room what it wanted. (laughs) I did. Yes. Yeah. It's really, I wrote this book for women, but a lot of my early readers right now, I have several thousand people reading it right now and they're like, well, I've got to tell you, my husband's reading it and he's taking notes. And so I think we can all do better than these really prescriptive um, packages that were handed as kids. And then we grow up into it and it's much harder to dismantle. Um, and so I do honor, I honor the listener that is listening to this and hears this is going to be hard and I don't know if I'm ready. I want to say, I hear you and I see that and you're not wrong. It is where this is not the easier path, but it is the better one. It is the true path. I think what we end up with on the other side of this work are women who are free and thus they are free to love well, to live well, to serve well. Um, they're going to flourish, which, which means everyone around them is too. So how do you keep going, you know, writing books? When I'm sure you had people around you that were like, what are you doing? God, I don't know. You know, know. you keep on writing your eight books, you know. What am I doing? <laughs> but but how did you, was it one day at a time? Was it, I just truly love writing, I'm going? Like, what, how did you, because, you know, I remember being yeah. part of startups I was with that, that you know, weren't exactly going well. Some people were supportive and some people are like, what are you doing? It's so funny because when I think back on those, that season, there is, there's no other way to interpret it than failure. There is no other way. And like, not with the shiniest rose colored glasses could I've ever looked back on those years and thought this is working. But you know, one thing I, I write about is that Um, In so many ways, ambition for women is often discouraged, or a certain brand of it. I should say we have some sanctioned ambitions that we are not punished for, but I was ambitious for this work, and I knew in my gut I was meant for it. I knew it. I knew I was made for it. I knew I could develop it. I knew I could earn it. And I was just willing to stay my hand at the work as long as it took, even when Every early adopter was like, Jen, this is a terrible idea. Like, it's basically costing you to be a writer. Um, and so I was just unwilling to walk away. And so that, it's a good, so on one hand, I'm a believer in sticking with it and, and just pushing through. On the other hand, you got to know when to walk away. And so that's a fine. You're right. And, and having the awareness 
to do that, to take a step back and yeah. almost look and say, okay, this is what's really going on here. Maybe it is time to walk away. Maybe I'm trying to uh, jam a square peg in a round it's hole true. and it's just the universe, God, whatever I believe in is sending me a message that there's something it's just not going to happen versus I need to keep on going. And I've think, done that too. Yeah, we all have. And I think yep. that's like the, the, what I call like the type A struggle. <laughs> that's me. Yeah. yeah. I, so what, what, how, how do you, any advice for? I, I think this answer may be a little bit more by touch than by book, but there is something different between an enterprise that is just, it's simply, sort of taking down everything around it, all your energy, all your joy, all your optimism. And let's be honest too, staying your hand at something past its prime is also a privileged position, which I was able to do um, because I had a husband who was kind of keep the lights on. Um, And so also, you know, I had the, the luxury to stay at it longer than I really had any right to. Um, But you know, there's also uh, a time to say this is this is not it, or I'm going to take the lessons that the season has given me, which is always something. Failure is such a great teacher; it's my best teacher. I'm going to take this. I'm going to build on it. I'm going to build on it over here in this second, this other zip code. Um, and <laughs> I think our I, this is why this inner work matters. Like in t- inside, I knew. Like I knew I was meant for to do this work. I knew I was meant to lead women. I knew I was meant to write and grapple with ideas of identity and faith and, and community and justice. And so um, I've had other things I just kind of threw against the wall and sure. thought, well, let's just see if this sticks. And if it doesn't, it's okay. This I, was not one of them. I like how you keep on saying season. Either, mm. You know, it's either the season of spring or fall or, you know, in the Netflix generation. This is only season four of Friends. There's like, you know, <laughs> 10 right. more. Totally. It's just a season. It's like a nice way of sort of yeah. separating your, yeah. yourself from it. So how much, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, someone I have tremendous respect for in the book, Carol Dweck. Yeah. Um, and the terms fixed mindset and growth mindset. Can you explain the differences and why it's so important? I love how she's given us those terms. Really has served me well. Um, And just in short, and of course this is her work, but it's this idea that folks with a fixed mindset essentially think whatever I was handed at birth, that's just what I have. Um, That there are some real successful people and then there are just the rest of us who will watch them from the sidelines. You know, that this is um, more or less the set I've been given. Where, of course, a growth mindset says anything can be cultivated. I can learn. I can develop. I can grow. Um, I I can work really hard at a thing and watch it flourish in some way. And so, um, which isn't to say, you know, I think there's a straw man argument here sometimes, which is, well, you know, I can't be an Olympian. I don't really think that's what we're going for here. (laughs) I think it's this really general perspective that it is really powerful when you look at your life through the lens of possibility 
and that you can be a learner. You can be a listener. You can try something new. You can put your hand to it and you can develop. Um, and you know, you kind of see this play out in various adult lives around you. Um, people that aren't afraid to take risks necessarily or start something they have no idea how to do, but they figure they can learn. I love people like that. Um, I've been very inspired by growth mindsets, um, and my colleagues and friends and family members. So my, I love everything you said. And my kind of perspective on the growth mindset is yes, I think there are some people where just circumstance or DNA just have a little bit more of that. And then I think some people work on that muscle by, you know, by experience and, and going to the, the, the growth mindset gym, if you will, every day and starting yeah. to tally up those small wins so that you get to a place where it almost becomes muscle memory. That's it. And I think that's important to note because some people have the habit of like, oh, I have this big thing vision and then they go all in and then they fail and then that's it. Yeah. One thing they that have no I, confidence. I learned is that uh, like every human person has three basic needs. And the very top one is positive relationships. Like I mentioned earlier, connectedness. And then the other two, one of them is autonomy. Just this sense of, I have agency over my own life. I'm not just at the whims of other people, but the third one is competence. And I think it's that growth mindset, which is an internal voice that says you can do this. It's very powerful. Um, when, when human people have a sense of agency and competence over their own life, that has an unbelievable effect on our mental health, on our productivity, um, on our possibility. And so I think this growth mindset, this idea of saying, I can do this, I can learn this, I can discover this is incredibly powerful impetus, uh, for happiness in adulthood. Like here's an example. I have always loved to write. Writing has writing came naturally. To your point, some some of, we we are all born naturally good at some things. Um, that medium just worked for me. It's always worked for me. I've written as long as I can remember. Well, once I started writing books, remember the ones that nobody read. <laughs> um, people started saying, "Can you come speak at our thing, at our event, at our conference?" And I remember thinking, "Well." I mean, did somebody tell you that I could? Do you know that I can do that? I'd never done that. Never. And so I had to tap into a growth mindset, which said to myself, you can figure out how to do this. You can learn how to do this. You can start terribly, which I did. God help anybody who heard me back then. You can fumble your way through the process. You can develop the muscle. And I have. So it's not my, it's not a natural gift for me. To this day, it's not natural. I have to work really hard at it. Um, but I just decided that I could, and thus changed my life. So you being asked to speak at conferences and, I, and ultimately saying yes leads me to the next question where you talk about in the book, choosing our yeses. Yeah. Let's talk about that. So, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that I've, I've been paying attention to places, pain points in my community of women where whatever they are saying on the outside is not matching what they're actually feeling on the inside. Of course, that is just a terrible recipe for life. <laughs> uh, that just won't hold. That does not have um, the capacity to give us the life we want to live. And this is one area. One area I noticed that women lie a lot is on what they actually want to do. 
uh, and what they actually don't want to do. And so again, some of that early social conditioning is that we are agreeable, right? We are so likable. We are going to make everything easier for everyone around us, um, even if we don't want to. And so we are conditioned to say yes and um, to take on burdens well beyond our capacity. And it has pissed us all off. Like women are really mad about this. They're simmering in resentment. They're angry. And frankly, one thing that I write about in Fierce, I'm like, let's be honest. We don't have the right to be angry at somebody who has asked us to do something beyond our capacity if we said yes. If we said yes, then we said yes. And they have every right to believe we meant it. And so this is not somebody else's fault for asking us to do too much. It's our fault for saying yes too much. So this is an ownership issue here. This is our work. We cannot expect this world to stop asking us to do too much. You know, our capacity is too high. Women are so capable. And so I'm asked to do 100 times the things that I have time for. So this is ours. This is on us to say, what is my highest point of contribution on this earth? Here's a great um, resource that I, I wrote in the book by uh, an author that I really love. He wrote a book called Essentialism. I don't know if you've ever read it, Greg McCowan. So he says, and I think this is a great filter. He said, when you're presented with an opportunity, he's like, the first thing you do is you kind of laser focus on what are my goals? What is my tip top objective? What do I want to accomplish? What is my end game? Um, what am I like really, really good at? Get really, really, really clear on that. And then when you are presented with an opportunity, consider it based on your metric, based on your goals, and you give it a score from zero to a hundred. Hundred being this is an all in like, this is the easiest yes I've ever given in my life, and a zero being hell no. Um, <laughs> and he said, if that opportunity scores a 90 to 100, it's a yes. But if it scores an 89 or lower, you change its score to zero and cancel it out. And so it takes out this time suck of indecision or you having a plate full of 70s. Or 65s that were you were kind of like I guess so yes you know like I should I guess I ought to I don't want to make them feel bad I don't want them to make them mad um, and so you end up with a bunch of 90s and above which is your highest point of contribution to the world so it doesn't fragment your gifts beyond usefulness and like I told women your 63 is somebody else's 94 right let them have it let them come to the task like wholehearted um, with like no guilt, no shame. So when you say your 63 is like someone else's 94, in a different context, I started thinking about the power of gratitude. Yeah. What, what role does gratitude play? Oh, gosh. It's so funny. Do you ever have a concept that just trails you and follows you around constantly? This is one of them for me. This idea of gratitude, I feel like this is in every conversation I'm having right now because it is just simply so powerful. It's, it's funny because I think our culture is looking for these real magic bullets that feel real fancy and gratitude does not feel fancy. It kind of feels like low hanging fruit or, and yet every single data point, every single experience and good leader and teacher and thinker is telling us, pay attention to gratitude, like it'll change your life and it will. Um, and so I think to me, this is again, training that inside voice to be kind to ourselves, 
to not be the mean girl voice in our heads, the mean guy voice in your head, but rather um, to call forth every beautiful, wonderful thing in your life, in your spirit, in your relationships. It really matters. This gratitude practice is no joke. There's a reason we're hearing about this across genres, um, from all sorts of teachers, all sorts of sorts of age groups. I think this is a real powerful tool at our disposal. And so we talked a lot about women and a little bit about men and I love how you talk about this in the book. I think everyone can relate this, the uh, different ways we communicate. Well, that's true, isn't it? (laughs) That's just true. (laughs) What are some of those differences and how can we do a better job of talking to each other? Again, this is going to be a real natural outcome to doing a lot of self-identification work because I think when we are more in tune with who I am and what I want and what I need, um, we are going to be more effective communicators. Otherwise, we're kind of patching it all together. We are trying to keep the peace, um, but the result of that is that we have no peace. And so what I notice is that in communication, that starts coming out as passive aggression. Um, or Which is the worst. The worst. But that's what, <laughs> that's what you get when you don't tell the truth. When you are not saying what is real and genuine, you end up being passive aggressive Um, or or it swings to the other side. You're incredibly bitter and resentful. You're angry, Um, which isn't really even fair because if we're not showing up to our relationships genuine, if we are not being truthful about what we really believe, think, want, need, then how can we even expect another person to read our minds or um, to know how to relate to us in a way that is healthy and true. And so this, again, I I mean, I hate to be a broken record here, but it's our work. It's ours. I cannot expect everybody around me to do this weird, strange dance and try to understand what it is I actually need. (laughs) That's mine. That's mine to do. And so um, my experience is that relationships that are worthy that, um, that are good and healthy, they can actually sustain really hard conversations that are at least true more than they can sustain, um, passive aggressiveness. Those are the ones that generally fall apart. And so I believe that our relationship, it's funny because we're usually we're trying to preserve a relationship by not being honest inside of it. We are not wanting to rock the boat. We're not wanting to unsettle the apple cart or whatever. Um, but actually that's, that's the death toll. Um, truth would actually salvage our relationships, even hard truth. Um, and it's the very thing we're afraid of. So in something I'm curious for you personally, what you've, what you've learned, like what's a, what's a way in a relationship to kind of broach a, a difficult conversation when something's annoying you. It's like, there's a couple of ways to do that. Yeah. A- and it's so much is it's not necessarily what's annoying. It's, it's all about the, the bedside manner, if you will, or the way you message, all you true. get different results. What have you found? I'm just curious. Uh, all of this is imperf- imperfect because sometimes I, I forget to follow my own rules, but we all do Yeah. in general, <laughs> in general. And this is not new but this is still useful, is that in the moment of conflict is not the best time, even though that's usually when it wants to boil over and come out of our mouths. Um, and so if you've been simmering in resentment for a while, if you've been keeping score, you know, I have a scoreboard and I, ta- I make tally marks. And if you're on 12 
And so, you, you know, your person doesn't even know that you've been like pinning every single offense to the same board. Um, then on that 13th time, when you boil over, it's just not going to go well, you know? And so I think there's a mature way to handle that, which is really thinking through your response and reaction and finding a calm a moment of non-conflict to talk about it. Um, and then of course there's just this also very well-known approach, which is to say, this is how that makes me feel mm-hmm. not necessarily. This is how, what, how, this is how you're terrible. You know, <laughs> this is why I'm it's, hating it's a, it's, you. It's a good reminder because yeah. I think we all have moments when that just comes out. Yeah, it does. And, you know, hopefully relationships that are worth their salt can recover from all those moments. You know, when we can say, I'm sorry and I forgive you. That's a huge portion. There's a, uh, a, a great, uh, I think she's a psychotherapist, Dr. Sue Johnson, mm. um, who she talks about this, it's, it, this, I think it's, she calls it like hold me tight or hold me close. Mm. And it's this idea that, you know, relationships that are, that are worth something, there's this key moment in conflict where you have that, you have to bring the person back yeah, and you have to come back. You say that thing you didn't want to say, or you're fighting in that moment where you really like, this is worth it. And you got to bring that person back. Yeah. And it's, it's very important to be aware. Cause if what you find, if you don't think the relations relationships worth it, it goes South quickly. You're right. And then you also have to be careful of ego. Yeah. And then it's almost like, a, again, like a learned muscle, but you yeah. start to develop that in relationships when it is where you have totally. that moment where it's like, I need to pull the person back. That's great. Otherwise, ugh. Well, and I think to the, if we're being our very best selves inside of conflict, it's also important to, to be as honest as you can be with your own self. Because, you know, this book talks about lies, lying all the time. We're like, <laughs> we lie to ourselves. And so sometimes the very first person that we lie to is me. And so if, if we're being really honest, we can also say, here's how I've contributed. And there's probably a way, even, even in a, in a relationship where there is a lot of offense that goes sort of on a one, a one way street, um, we can contribute by being enablers. We can contribute by not speaking up. We can contribute by saying, I pretended this didn't bother me and it did. Um, so if, if we're honest and we look at a relationship on its face and see this pain point, generally we can say, let me first say what I want to apologize for inside of this. Here is how I did not serve reconciliation well. And that of course is useful and between two people that love each other. Mm-hmm. And, um, if, if we want that relationship to work, these are the tools, um, that can get us to a healthy place where we are all at least saying what's real. So we've talked a lot about love in the context of relationships. I'll segue to self-love and mm. specifically body image. You, yeah. you have this great yes. little history of body image going back to ancient Greeks to the roaring 20s. Let's yeah. talk a little bit about body image and how it's changed and where totally. it's at today and what needs to change. I, I can, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to think of another conversation that is not more common to the community of women. And I see this now that everyone is reading that chapter and it is landing with such a thud onto the hearts of women. Body image has broken our hearts for a very long time. And so again, as we sort of take this idea of how can our outside and inside just be integrated, we, we hate our bodies. We are at war with our bodies and we were taught to be, um, again, we never got out of kindergarten before we knew what was considered beautiful. 
And so, you know, I walked the reader through this um, high level, 30,000 foot view look at what beauty has been as it's meandered through the centuries and through the cultures. And there has never been one standard of beauty. Never. Um, It's gone from plump and round and big boobed to like waif and androgynous and thin and everything in between. And even in our lifetime, the cultural idea of pristine beauty has changed. And so it's, it's just such a silly thing to chase. Um, it's not real. It's invented. It's invented. And then it has, you know, billion dollar industries wrapped around it. So to ensure that we hate ourselves and that we will buy anything to fix these terrible containers, you know, walking us around in this world. And so I'm just, as far as I can tell, we're all sick of the war. We are sick of it and we're tired and we've made ourselves sick and we just hate our bodies. And I just have wondered, I'm curious, what would, what it would look like if a generation of women brokered peace deal, you know, and just said, this body is so good to me. And she has done more for my life than anybody else. And she has carried me through every beautiful experience I've ever had. And she is on my side. I was um, in an interview the other day and I was just saying, my body always knows what's right for me. It is, my body is team Jen all the way, like the president of team Jen. And so what would it look like if we trusted her and loved her well and thanked her for her partnership on this earth. And it's so different from the messages we receive from the world. Sure. It's so different that it almost feels just radical. Just go to Instagram. It's not, yeah, it's everywhere. It's everywhere, but I'm sick of it. And so I I, I keep thinking, I think about you with your little girls. Me too. (laughs) Yeah, I've got a 19 year old and I have a 14 year old. And I just think I want this for them. I, I want this from, I want them to love themselves and I want them to be proud of their bodies. And, um, I want to stop the war before it starts for them. So how do you instill that message as an individual? You know, someone's listening saying, yes, yes. Like, okay, what can I start to do? And then any advice for mm. you know parents like me out there or mm. you out there or trying mm. to instill that message to our kids? What's so hard about this one is that I mean, in every possible way, we are going against the grain on this. In every possible way. I mean, there isn't a place that we can look and find this almost anywhere in our culture. So um, our, our, our commercials and our shows and our dolls and our books and our movies and our punchlines and everything is committed to tell us what beauty looks like this narrow standard. And so we are going to have to work so hard on this one. Um, and it taught, it starts at least for women on what we tell ourselves. And then ultimately when I think about a parent, it's the words we're saying in our homes. What are we saying about our bodies? What are we saying to our kids? We were um, talking earlier today with a friend and she was saying she's in her thirties and she's like, my mom to this very day is on me all the time about my weight. And I'm in my 30s and she's worried. And so, you know, the way that we speak to our children, our girls, but our boys too. Our boys sure. are our boys um, are also told what their body should look like. And it really has nothing to do with the way they're born. It's just how can, what can you do to your body to look like this? And so I admitted in fears that out of all 12 chapters, this is the one that I still struggle the very most. 
um, and the one where I still have the farthest to go and the most work to do um, because it's simply so hard to find this message out in the wild. Um, So it's going to have to be internalized and practiced. It's not going to come easy. So another thing that probably won't won't come easy is a lot of anxiety in the world today. Yeah. And, you know, rightfully so. Sure. What what advice do you have for people out there who are, you know, just anxious, whether it's about coronavirus or their well-being, just anything like there's I'd say that this is generation anxiety. Yeah. What advice do you have for people? Um, You have probably read the book and been exposed to the work of. Um, Emily Nagoski, Burnout. Sure. Yeah. Uh, her and her sister Amelia have taught me a lot about this. And this sense of like stress and anxiety in the body, which as you just mentioned, we all have and for good reason. It's not, we're not making it up. This is a hard world right now. And there are things to be scared about. And there are things to be worried about. Um, it's just going to be really natural that we do feel that way. So I don't think there is any formula to not feel. It's okay to feel it. It's normal. It's okay. Yeah, that's an... Our bodies are actually made to feel anxious. It's a signal um, to keep us safe. You know, that's there's there there are reasons to have stress and anxiety. But you know, of course, one thing that I've learned from those women is the sense of like, let it run through its course. Um, I think we spend a lot of time it's trying. It's a season. It's a season. <laughs> it's even a five-minute season. You know, I, I find a lot of practitioners essentially trying to teach us how to structure our lives in such a way that we don't have any anxiety. You know, that we are mitigating all stress, and it's not a part of our life, but that's not only is that not possible, it's it's not even good. Well, you know what's funny? It reminds me of what's going on in corona, with the coronavirus right now. You've got, what, you know, I'd say what I've seen anecdotally, there's two groups of people. One grown group that's just like, whatever, I'm fine. Totally. I'm ignoring it. And then another group that's like totally freaking out. Yes. And there needs to be a little bit of a middle sure. ground. And it sure. is serious and it's all planned. Who knows what's going to be when, when this airs. But it's like neither, you, you can't just ignore something. Yeah. And you can't just completely, it's hard right. to say, like finding that. Totally. Right. So I think sometimes anxiety and stress are there to give us a message. And so we should maybe receive it. Um, again, I told you my body's team gin. And so when my body is sending me anxiety signals, sometimes it's a, it's a good moment for me to take a look at my scenario and go, Ooh, this, I have put too much on my plate. Um, and my body's like throwing up the flare, um, overload, overload. So again, it's, it can be useful. Um, I've, I learned from the Nagoski girls, um, let it run through. And so it, they say, of course, the number one way, as they call it, complete the cycle of stress and anxiety is anything physical. And so that can be working out if that's what you love. Um, it can be running if that's what you love. But it can also be, I sometimes when I'm, I work at home, I have a home office in my backyard, like in a little building. When I feel it and everything's tight, everything's tense, I just take off my shoes and we live on an acre and I just walk the whole perimeter with my feet in the grass that physicality, the grounding, yeah, it just walks it right out. Um, and then, of course, they mention affection, which can be something as simple as talking to somebody that in your workplace that you know this person likes me and respects me, and I just want to make a connection. It can be like a twenty-second hug. It can be um, any kind of like physical moment with another person um, that brings you back into a sense of belonging. And so, again, I don't think we always fight off anxiety. We let it go through, you know, let it finish and let it teach it, teach us what it is there to teach us. Um, and then 
move on in health and strength. I'm also working on that. I would not say I'm perfect at that. I'm only delivering good information. And I'm not saying I'm a perfect practitioner. Um, but I, I think we're working on this. It's exciting to kind of watch this generation, this um, next generation grow up with way more tools than I think we had. You know, they got a, they have a lot more tools in their kit on how to live like integrated lives. And so I'm excited to watch them and see what they are going to teach us <laughs> north of them. So my last question, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice when you first started writing book number one, mm. what advice <laughs> would that be when you began this journey? Oh, sheesh. When I started, when I wrote book number one, I had three kids and they were five, three, and one. And now on book 13, I have five kids and I have two in college and two in high school, one in middle. So first of all, book number one, Jen would not even believe this business. I mean, she just would not even (laughs) believe what life is. Um, She'd be super, super shocked. Um, But I think I feel really tender toward that me. I feel very, very tender toward all the earlier versions of myself. And so I think I would tell her at that time, you are doing like a beautiful job. I know you think you're not. I know you feel anxious. I know you feel like you're not enough. I know that you feel like you're not measuring up, that you're not doing anything well, not mothering, not writing, not wifing, not friending. Uh, It feels like that at the time. But I would be so kind to her and say, you are really doing the very best you can with what you know right now. You should be proud of that, Um, that you are showing up for your life um, just to the greatest degree that you can. Our future selves would always be much kinder kinder to ourselves than our current selves are. Well, I'm, I'm curious about that because so many people share a similar sentiment. And I'm curious, is it because you were so hard on yourself that ultimately you succeeded because you demanded a higher standard and you weren't, and you were so, and I think also it, it's, it sinks with passion because you were so passionate. Yeah. You had to be, you demanded excellence and it didn't matter. And you were in flow and yeah. all of that. Like, do you think that I've been asked that question before too. Like, well, maybe that's the exact reason that you're successful now. Um, but I don't believe it. (laughs) I, I really don't believe it. I, I, of course, I don't know because I can't go back and redo it or relive it a different way. I'm sure they're working on that in Silicon Valley. I'm sure they are. Let's just live (laughs) a little longer and we'll get to, we'll get to redo. But I, I suspect that what was in me was going to be born no matter what that this is, this is what I'm here to do. And this is who I am. And that all of my squeezing and pushing and, and shame and guilt that I walked around with didn't serve it at all. Um, that that did not serve my work in this world. That didn't get me here any faster. It stole some time. Uh, it stole some joy and, and hope from the season. But I just have this real sense that we are created with so many special gifts and so much to bring to bear on this earth. And that things like um, fear and shame and comparison and jealousy don't serve it. Um, If anything, I think it slows down the train. And so it feels exciting to me to think about like my 19 year old daughter entering adulthood way more free of those trappings than I would. 
I'm like, you know, that, that uh, let's see that kid go. Let's see her just <laughs> set free, unafraid, liberated in her body and her mind and her soul and her gifts. Now that gets me excited. That is the community of women that I'm interested in building. Amen to that. Yeah. Jen, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. 